0: You are listening to the Edu Salon podcast, a space for connection and conversation around education. Each episode, Dr. Deborah Nedelitsky talks with a global education thought leader to provide insights into where education is now and where it might move next.
1: Hello and welcome to the Edu Salon podcast. Recorded on the lands of the Wajak people of the Noongar Nation, to whose elders, past, present and emerging, I pay my respects. My name is Deborah Netelitsky, and today I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Santiago Rincon-Gajardo. Santiago's experience includes as an advisor to the Mexican Ministry of Education. Now, as an education consultant and the Chief Research Officer of Michael Fullan's team, he's involved in multiple consultation and research projects in the USA, Canada, Latin America and Europe. Santiago holds a Master of Education and a Doctorate of Education from Harvard on education, policy, leadership and instructional practice. He completed his doctoral studies at the Ontario Institute of Studies and Education and has been a visiting scholar at the University of Toronto. He's author of the book, Liberating Learning, Educational Change as a Social Movement. Welcome, Santiago.
0: Thank you so much for having me here, David. It's a pleasure to be here with you.
1: It's a pleasure to be here talking with you. We were just talking before we started recording that We sort of saw each other in passing in 2020 in Morocco. Uh, So it's nice to be able to speak to one another now. So let's start the conversation. I actually wanted to sort of take you back before we go forward to some of the work that you did in Mexico. I was reading about the Learning Community Project, and it seems that some of that work was really foundational in your thinking and that you were involved there in significant nationwide change to instructional practice in schools. And I'm wondering what that project and your involvement, your, your research into it, taught you about schools and how maybe that's influenced your thinking and your work since then.
0: Thank you very much, Deb. I actually realized that this is not something I usually talk about. And uh, and I'm now realizing, when you're asking the question, how foundational my experience in Mexico was. At the time, I was was not a researcher. I was a, a young university student in my early 20s, and at that time, my now mentor, my lifelong mentor, Gabriel Camara, was looking for a young mathemati- mathematician to join a project that was aimed at developing learning communities in uh, the most remote corners of the country, the CONAFE, which is the National Council for the Promotion of Education. So I was a young idealist at the time, you know, long hair, I, you know, uh, just, uh, you know, saggy pants, like wearing sandals, wearing my moral, my kind of traditional indigenous back with me. And I was very excited to meet Gabriel Camara. at the time he was in, the 70, in his 70s. And uh, he was into some pretty radical thinking around what to do with education, especially in the most remote communities in the country. These are communities with less than 500 people, very remote, many of them lacking basic uh, services like water, electricity, etc. And what he had in mind was not to try to reproduce conventional schooling. But to create learning centers, learning hubs, where adolescents, mostly people, you know, young people who are graduating from school, could develop the ability and the confidence and the joy to learn on their own, using writing and reading as the core medium. That was the basic idea. And the idea was to create community centers where not only adolescents were showing up, but also any member of the community interested in learning. So the moment I heard the, the invitation and the, 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 na- the nature of the, of the work that, that Gabriel uh, was trying to lead, I got so excited to be part of his team. So I joined his team again as a young university student at the time I was st- studying mathematics. And, and, and that's what we set out to do. I was invited to be part of, a, of, a nation, of the national leadership team of what was called the post-primary project. That was the, 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 the label uh, behind the, the project. And the idea again was to develop a model that would enable young people and the young instructors that were living in the communities as teachers uh, to develop the, the, the capacity to learn by themselves with expert support of people who were good about learning independently themselves. So that was the idea. And one of the things that uh, Gabriel Cámara was very insistent on was the idea that we had to keep a very strong link between design and execution. So the idea is that this nice ideal vision that we had for education in these remote communities, we had to make the commitment to demonstrate that these things that we were kind of creating in our minds where possible in practice. So we spent a lot of time in these very remote communities, almost half of our time, just in remote communities, working with schools, not to evaluate teachers or to evaluate students, but to evaluate our strategy, to see what was working, what wasn't, and then continuously refining the model over time. The moment came after a few years of trying out uh, this work with a few hundred schools, uh, you know, in about... 27 states in Mexico, that we realized there was a huge basic contradiction in our model. And the contradiction was the following. We were envisioning places where children would be able to develop the capacity to learn on their own, and that they would be supported by young instructors who would be able to support their independent learning in any academic area, and you know, mathematics, language, science, history, etc. And yet, our training—the central, ter- the national training for the instructors and the, tra- the, the trainers in the state-level teams—was was divided by subject matter. So each expert would deliver the training in their area of expertise. So that's what this, the the instructors were exposed to. It was different experts training them in different areas. Yet, when they got, but we we were not demonstrating with our actions, with our practice, what it would look like to support independent learning of others multidisciplinarily and across disciplines and in different areas. So we realized that what we were asking instructors to do was not what we were modeling with our practice. And that was a pivotal moment for our team because we came to realize that if we wanted learning communities to flourish in remote communities across the country, We had to become a learning community ourselves first. So as a mathematician, I started supporting the learning of the expert in literature and reading and writing and science. And I started to read literature myself with the support of an expert in in literature. I started to uh, explore questions of science and history. And I can say that it was like an awakening for me. Throughout my, my years in school, I had been a very good student. I got, I got the best grades every year, every month. I got certificates showing that I was the highest achieving achieving student, all the way from grade one to, to high school. I had aced the game of schooling, but my experience in Conafe made me realize that all these grades had left me disabled to learn on my own. I was really good at following other people's expectations, but when it came to make sense personally, internally, of big ideas, of problems, etc., I was clueless. I left school with the best grades, unable to learn on my own. And here I am, in the middle of this very exciting project, starting to discover, for the first time, the beauty of poetry. Even though I had had amazing grades in literature when I was in high school, this was the first time I started to feel the literature, to to enter in conversation with the poet, to understanding and and deciphering what was behind the tricky kind of arrangement of words, I started to explore questions that really intrigued me, like how do airplanes fly? Why do airplanes fly? Or how did Dalton uh, discover there were atoms where there was no technology refined enough to, to be able to see them? So what I gained in those years was regained the joy of learning the joy of making sense by myself with the support of someone else, of really interesting questions and topics and and problems. That was a, a foundational gift that life gave me, just discovering my ability to learn by myself. And after our team became a learning community, we also discovered the power of showing up as members of learning communities with uh, trainers, with instructors, with students. So we started to create an organizational culture where anybody across the entire system at the central office in the national headquarters of CONAFE and in the most remote communities were expected to master a practice of independent learning and of supporting others in their learning. And this created a massive ripple effect all the way from the central office to to the small communities we were working in. What I learned those days about my own capacity to learn, about everybody's capacity to learn and the power it has to transform lives in a very deep, profound way, is in many ways what what has inspired and guided my work even even through these years. My mentor, Gabriel Cámara, at, at his 92 years of age, is now the national director of CONAFE. So he came back with a whole trove, a mass of people who were students or teachers at that time, 20 years ago, and are still there in CONAFE. Uh, so what they're trying to do is to spread this whole movement to now over 30,000 communities all over the country. CONAFE, this organization where I first met Gabriel, was my most important education experience. And I treasure it as such, because it was not only stimulating intellectually, (laughs) right? It was not only emotionally stimulating, but it also caused a profound transformation in me. That's now what I want to make sure that every student, every young people has access to.
1: I can see how that has really influenced your work since then and you know, 92 and leading communities and, and that community growing from that community sounds just amazing. And you talk in a lot of your work, including the chapter that you wrote for the book that I edited, Future Alternatives for Educational Leadership, about what you probably just talked about as the game of schooling, traditional schooling, as having the purpose of custody, control and sorting. Yeah. And then some of the words I just heard you talking about are the sort of, I suppose, I think the vision I think you have for learning in the future. So you talked about awakening and joy and transformation and idealism, radical thinking, culture and community and independent learning. And I guess when I look at that chapter that you wrote for Future Alternatives of Educational Leadership book, it's a pretty idealistic premise that you put forward, that learning is a practice of freedom. So I'd love for you to talk about partly that premise, learning as a practice of freedom, but also how do we move from that very idealistic idea to a reality in a school or a classroom?
0: That's a a very good question, and it is idealistic, it is, and at the same time, it's at the core of, I believe, it's at the core of what we humans are built to do, and meant to do, and actually equipped to do very well. There are a few things that's fascinating to me, I've seen children figuring out their world on their own, with a supportive environment and supportive adults. They learn incredibly complex things. They learn language. They learn to talk from zero, right? They learn to walk. They learn learn to read people's minds and behaviors. If they're in in multilingual settings, they learn multiple languages at the same time. They learn tremendous amounts, complex stuff without ever being taught. (laughs) Just with an environment where they're exposed to the things that then become important to them to more expert practice of what they need to learn and with a supportive environment that nurtures them, that, that allows them to, to, to try and fail and do things differently, etc. John Holt often said, John Holt, one of the critics of education, of, of, of schooling in the 70s, said, you know, if the schools were the institutions responsible to teach people to talk, the world would be silent or mute. It is in our inherent nature As humans to learn, to learn complex stuff. The thing is, we have really created a system that's intended to nurture our abilities to to, to learn, but that stifles them in very, very powerful ways. The, The notion that learning is a practice of freedom, it sounds idealistic, but I think it's a very accurate description of what are the conditions under which we learn powerfully. And the interesting thing is that we have come to create, again, an institution that stifles that because its driving force is control. Control is the main, it's in the DNA of our schooling system. Control precludes connection. If you're in a situation where you're constantly controlled by someone above you, no matter how well-intentioned the person above you is, the connection that can happen there is very limited. Control precludes connection. And connection is fundamental for learning. So it is idealistic in the sense that it's about going back, and it is radical in the sense that it's going back to the roots of the problem, addressing the roots of the problem. And I'm talking about roots in two ways. First is going to the roots of what it means to be human, but also going to the roots of the problem, of the big challenge that we have created by establishing huge educational systems that run under the logic of control. So, how to make it a reality. Uh, and that's, that's the big question that I've been trying to tackle in my work as a consultant, as an educator, as a scholar, etc. If we agree that learning is a practice of freedom and schooling, for the most part, is a vehicle for control, <laughs> what we need is deep and widespread cultural change. We need to change in fundamental ways. The way we think about and practice things like teaching, and school leadership and system leadership education policy etc the problem is not that schooling does not work the problem is that it works for the purposes it was created for <laughs> so it's not that our systems are broken they work very well for the purpose of control custody and sorting those are things that school actually know how to do very well how to how to take care of children while the parents are working and sorting Schools have become a major mechanism to determine who has access to what kind of opportunities based on very arbitrary set of criteria. So it is not that schools don't work. They work for the purposes that they were designed for. The problem, again, is that this stifles learning as a practice of freedom. It stifles creativity. It stifles one of the main resources that humanity has to leverage now to survive. <laughs> Learning is a practice of freedom. Schooling is a vehicle for control. If we accept, accept this premise, we need deep and widespread cultural change. And throughout history, throughout history, the vehicle that humanity has created or has leveraged to create powerful, deep, long-lasting, uh, sp- uh, widespread cultural change having been social movements. Social movements are creative forces that challenge and redefine Patterns of social interaction. Think about the feminist movement and what it's doing to try to challenge and redefine the nature of the interaction between men and women. Uh, the work that the civil rights movement has done, in more recently with Black Lives Matter, trying to change and challenge and transform the pattern of social interaction between Black Americans and White America. Uh, think about the indigenous movements that are trying to reestablish and uh, to challenge and redefine. The nature of the connection between and the relationship between uh, indigenous peoples and um, uh, and colonizers right it, it's through social movements that big dominant patterns of social interaction are being challenged and redefined
1: as you're talking um i'm thinking about a book that i co-edited called flip the system australia what matters in education yeah. which is part of the flip the system series of books yeah which we talked about in our introduction of that book, Cameron Patterson, John Andrews and I, as a movement. And that's, I think, how we saw it because, and I guess I'm coming back to that idea that we were talking about before that I was asking about in terms of how, um, and I think we're coming to yeah. that, but Flip the System is about the idea that it's teachers and those in schools who are the system from the ground up bringing in micro changes or um, things that are going to flip the system hierarchically, but also democratise, um, liquefy, equalise the system. So as you think about, you've done a lot of work into this metaphor of, of learning as a social movement and leading learning as a social movement. What does that percolation of change, power, things that can be done if I'm a teacher in a school, if I'm a school leader in a school, if I'm in a system of schooling somewhere around the world, how does that manifest in action or, or in what people can be doing?
0: Wonderful. It, it is a wonderful question. I have a, 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 some, some, some strong thoughts about it, just that derive from my experience in Mexico, but what I have seen happening in many places, especially across the Global South. Uh, there are phenomenal examples in the Global South that, over the past, say, four to five decades, in a span of four to five decades, uh, in different moments of ta- in time, have been able to transform pedagogy And to do it at scale and to do it in very powerful ways, creating the conditions for to liberate learning. Uh, I'm talking about, of course, the Learning Community Project. Now we know it as, or we call it the Tutorial Networks um, Project, Escuela Nueva in Colombia, uh, the Community Schools in Egypt, the Activity-Based Learning Model, the southern state of uh, Tamil Nadu in India. And what these movements have been able to do is to transform the grammar of schooling, to replace... The grammar of schooling with what I call now the language of learning. It's about developing a new way of doing things. Now, the question of how, which is the one you asked at the beginning, and I have kind of walked around a bit. So how, how to do it? The basic unit we need to intervene is the pedagogical core. Uh, some have called it the, the instructional core. This is what my, my very dear mentor and friend, Richard Elmore, who left us too, too, way too soon, introduce the idea of the instructional core. I'd like to call it pedagogical core. And basically what I mean by the pedagogical core is the interaction between an educator and a learner in the presence of an object of knowledge. That's the fundamental unit that we need to change. It's in that unit, in the interaction between an educator and a learner in the presence of an object of knowledge that learning happens or not. If there's something that that research on educational change uh, initiative shows us is how resilient the dominant culture of schooling is and how stable the conventional configuration of the instructional core is, even after waves of disruption, after over a hundred years of, of, uh, over a century of of, uh, compulsory schooling, decades of attempts to reform schools. What you see in most schools around the world is that the instructional core, the pedagogical core, remains pretty much stable. There's the expert on top, someone who knows what what to do, whose place over someone who doesn't and who tells the, the person below what to do. There's a clear hierarchical division between the one who knows the one who doesn't, the one who says what has to be done and the one who has to comply. There's a very clear vertical hierarchical relationship. We need to change that and we need to turn the instructional core into a unit where the connection between educator and learner is one of dialogue, of continuous learning, of a, a, a relationship where, where both parts learn and change in the process of learning. That's fundamentally what we have to do, and that's our starting point. How do we do that? First, um, one, one one way to, to do it that has, is incredibly effective is to expose teachers to the kind of pedagogical practices that we want to, to encourage them to try with their with their students, but allow teachers to take the learner role first, to be in the position of a learner. Ideally, we're trying to tackle problems or subject, or subject matters That teachers don't feel very well equipped to understand mathematics, uh, history, literature, whatever the teacher struggles the most with. Try to create opportunities where they feel safe enough to try to explore those questions, those topics, those subject matters with the expert and caring support of someone who knows it very well. So expose teachers to experiences of powerful learning. Almost inevitably, what happens when teachers leave powerful learning, when they experience powerful learning, one almost almost an immediate response and reflection from them is, what have I been doing all these years? <laughs> you know, what? what have I been doing all these years in my classroom? Because they experience the contrast between what powerful learning looks like and what powerful pedagogy can do for you.
1: That's your contrast between compliance and freedom, right,
0: in your learning. Right, right, right. But leaving the experience of learning powerfully yourself is one of the most important triggers to get you to try and do something different. The second part is to work with with students to try to develop alongside them strategies that will work in their classroom. So given that I've experienced powerful learning now, what do I do now in a room with 20, 30 students? How can we set it up so that? Experiences of the same nature, similar experiences to the ones I'm experiencing as an educator can be part of what my students go through and live. So working alongside them to support the changes in their practice that need to happen so that learning is, is nurtured as a practice of freedom. And the idea is to make the impact of your work visible, increase the visibility of your work. So when you start to see the awakening in your students, you know, when you start to see that the students are taking books to their home and spending their free time reading or learning new things as opposed to playing video games or watching the TV. And uh, when they start to, they stop noticing the, the ring bell going on to go to recess because they want to continue exploring the things they want to explore. When you start to see those things, it is very hard to go back. And also there is very often an impulse to say, this is really good. I should let others know about this work. So mm-hmm. amplifying the visibility of your work is an important part of the strategy as well. Once you start gaining traction and start to see the awakening in your students, then bring in other teachers, other students, people from other schools and other classrooms in your school to start witnessing what is possible. And that's what can start to trigger the kind of movement that we saw growing in spaces like, like the Learning Community Project in Mexico. Now, I don't think that purely bottom-up grassroots innovation will do it by itself. We need a partnership with the top that has to be very progressive and reflective of the nature of the pedagogical interaction we want to see in classrooms. For that, part of the work is to start finding allies. If you don't have access to institutional power, try to access it, try to find ways to become, uh, you know, to, to, to gain a place of more influence within a system. But while you're looking for that, try to find your allies in the Ministry of Education, the Department of Education, or in your school supervision, that are likely to support your work, to defend it, to advocate for it. Uh, and if, you, if there's none of that, start by bringing them to your classroom to see what's possible when you change what's happened.
1: So you've got the community, collaboration, visibility, advocacy, and storytelling as well, which I know is an important part of what you think is important in changing the narrative of, of schooling.
0: That's right. There is, uh, and and that's a, that's an area. The public narrative side of things is something that I've started to learn more recently, and uh, that I think we haven't used as 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 uh, strategically as I think we could in the educational field. Uh, and this is some of the work that Marshall Gans at the Kennedy School of Government in, in Harvard has been has been teaching for years and has learned from his involvement in, in several uh, social movements. But the idea here is that well-rounded change and well-rounded leadership, and at the end of the day, effective leadership, is about mobilizing and igniting three aspects of the people you work with. It's the heart, the, the head, and the hands. It's those three things. And I think overall in the education field, we're, we tend to be much better at at the head, <laughs> at you know, uh, creating good ideas, uh, something that's intellectually stimulating, something that research tells us is good. But the hands and the hearts part have been a bit, uh, have, have not really pay, been paid enough attention. Uh, and uh, education and leadership are not only intellectual and practical practices, they are emotional as well. Uh, they have to involve emotion. And part of the work that we have to do is to be able to strategically and intentionally mobilize emotion too, so that we can overcome the emotions that actually maintain the status quo. So the kind of experiences like the one I'm I'm talking about are able to to mobilize emotion. But another way to mobilize emotion is public narrative through story, uh, through uh, creating a, a story that first a story that, that tells the world who you are as a leader. Who are you? What brought you? What moves you? What are the things that that move you to do what you do? And then the stories also help us connect to others. So how does, does my story connect to your story? Uh, so that's the story of self, then the story of, of us, which is building the story of who I am. How do I connect with you uh, or how do we connect? And the third element of public narrative is the story of now. So what's the big challenge we need to address together uh, and that I'm inviting you to, to take a part on? So it's through a story that we mobilize emotion. If data and information kind of mobilize our, our mind, our uh, reason, Uh, The story moves our hearts. Uh, And that's part of the work we have to do and that we have to do it intentionally. And again, public narrative is a field that I don't think has been explored and used enough in the education field, but one that has tremendous potential to start mobilizing again, not only the heads, but also the, the hearts and the hands of the people we work with.
1: And if I think about what you're talking about there with heart and emotion, there was a twenty twenty paper that you wrote deschooling well-being. and I think wellbeing, especially with the pandemic and the events of the last couple of years, has certainly been something that's risen to the surface as as it always has been, but possibly more recognised as really being integrated with learning. Uh, and there's a there's a bit that you write that I'm just going to read, which is that conventional schooling is detrimental to well-being powerful learning is a precursor of wellbeing and compulsory schooling is not designed to cultivate and indeed gets in the way of powerful learning. And you say wellbeing has to be de-schooled and deeply entwined with learning. And I think certainly everyone would agree in education, I think at the moment, that wellbeing needs to be deeply entwined with learning. But I'm interested in that idea of the de-schooling of it or the, the, how wellbeing sits with that idea you're talking about, about igniting the hearts and engaging emotions and relationships and connection are those things the same, or are they is well-being more than that? What does that look like for you?
0: One thing that we're seeing happen, especially with the with the disruption of the pandemic, is that there's a lot of attention now being placed and a lot of prevalence being given in this course, in practice, in policy, to students' well-being. And I think that's very important. I mean, our lives and the, the lives of our children have been shaken up in incredible ways and sometimes very painful ways. So well-being is a very important aspect of the work we're doing. The problem is that in many cases, the impulse to promote well being ends up in very superficial practices that basically assume that schooling is all right. All we have to do is just to kind of protect the children enough so that they're in a good enough shape to continue to go through the motions of schooling. The grammar of schooling is damaging to our children's health and well being. And let me put it this way when people in general, but young people in particular, are systematically exposed to relationships of authority and control. And when they're subject to boredom, what happens at neurological level is similar to what happens when someone is uh, experiencing stress. It's cortisol that is released when we are bored, but having to pay attention to, to not getting in trouble. So boredom, has become the signature experience for most of our children in schools, especially in high schools. But in in elementary school, uh, you know, as they progress through schooling, it's a fundamental experience. It's a signature experience of most children in schools. That's toxic. So it is damaging to their well-being. On the contrary, when you practice freedom, when you have a room to play, when you are in a place of of care and support, where your connection to the adults that, that look after you is one of of equal footing. I mean, of course, the adults need to have an authority there. But when the connection is one of mutual understanding and dialogue and care and solidarity, that's what produces well-being. That's what allows the good uh, oxytocin to release, right? So if we're serious about well-being, we need to realize that schooling is part of the problem. Again, it's become more prevalent, more visible with the pandemic but it's been there since compulsory schooling was invented as a mechanism of, of control. I mean, who
1: wouldn't want freedom, play, transformational learning and joy to be your signature experience rather than boredom be your signature right. experience of education?
0: <laughs> right. Uh, but the thing is we have, we have the resources and I think the willingness to do it. Schools own the majority of the hours that our students are awake the majority of childhood and adolescence is spent in classrooms. We own that time. Schools own that time. And it's within our power to define what we do with that time. And the problem is that if we continue to go about trying to maintain the conventional grammar of schooling, just getting students through the motions, getting good grades, passing from one grade to the next, getting good at compliance, we are disabling them from developing the skills, the dispositions, the, the knowledge that they need to have in order to face the messy world that we're living for them and to change it for the better. So we are creating, unintentionally, I don't think there's still intent here, but we are creating a, a system that, funny enough, it's it's supposed to prepare our generations for the future, but we're instead, is, instead uh, disabling them. The good news is that play, freedom, those are things that children are experts at. I mean, they, they know how to do it very well. What we need to do is to figure out ways in which we can allow that to happen, to leverage it, and to, org- to help coordinate it and organize it in a way that will allow them to learn in powerful ways what we as adults believe and as societies believe they need to master and learn how to do. We just need to change the way we we, we, we deal with the pieces we have in our system. But resources, time, people, all those things, we have them. The challenge is how we reorganize them in a way that serve what should be the purposes of education and schooling.
1: Thank you. Well, we're coming to the end of our time together. And so I'm going to move us to the final five questions of what I call the quick quickfire lightning round. So firstly, what is something unexpected that many people might not know about you?
0: I love playing music and singing. That's part of uh, that would have been kind of my my second choice of career if I did, hadn't gone into into mathematics. So I play the guitar. I play many uh, Latin American string instruments and I sing. Uh, so for many, you know, I, I, I had a rock band in, in high school. I played in and, and was part and led Latin American folk music bands uh, when I was in university. Even at Harvard, we had a, a Latin American music band. And it's something I, I thoroughly enjoy. Uh, I, in, in many ways, I, I, I am a, I'm a closet entertainer. I love to sing for people and with them and make make people sing together in different tunes and stuff. So, so that's something that's probably not that known about me.
1: That sounds very fun. I'm wondering how we can organize that at a conference somewhere. Um, Let's although, make that happen. I, although I should not sing in front of anyone. How about something that's currently on your desk?
0: First, a bunch of books and then a, a big writing project, One, uh, two big writing projects. I have uh, four books on my desk right now. One is um, Atomic Habits by James Clear, a phenomenal Phenomenal book. It's really changing my way to organize my everyday life. Atomic Habits by James Clear. The second one is Naomi Klein's How to Change Everything. So it's a, the first book that Naomi Klein writes for young people. The, the name again is How to Change Everything. And um, the subtitle is The Young People's Guide, The Young Human's Guide to Protect the Planet and Each Other. The third one is um, a book by Bruce Lippman that's called The Biology of Belief. And it's a fascinating book by one of the pioneers in, um, in epigenetics that's demonstrating that genes and DNA are not the ones that determine our biology. But in fact, genes are affected and influenced by context, by environment, and most fascinatingly, by consciousness, <laughs> uh, by our minds. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's mind-blowing. I don't think we're anywhere near... That discussion in the education sector, and and I'm really really enjoying it. The fourth book I'm reading is um, I'm reading for the second time is uh, uh, is the science of learning and development. This is a, a compilation by David Osher and Pam, Pamela Cantor that uh, that does a beautiful job of summarizing decades of research on the nature of, of learning, how learning happens. And uh, uh, it's multidisciplinary, it's concise, it's, it's, it's very interesting. So that's that's kind of a, more on the academic realm what I'm doing. I have two writing projects right now going on. One is a big report we're um, creating with Michael and his team, with Michael Full and his team for California. We are very much engaged with California. It's a very interesting time for, for the state. There's a lot at stake, but there's also a lot of possibility to move the entire system to a much better place. The second thing in my, writing, in my desk right now is I'm writing and preparing our next book about leadership that will uh, kind of delve into the ideas that I started developing the chapter you invited me to to, to write in, in, in your book, um, Future Alternatives for Educational Leadership. The book will be centered on, on leadership and how to mobilize hearts, heads and hands.
1: Fantastic. Um, is there anything else coming up that you're excited about or is it mainly those projects that you've got on the go?
0: You know the the working Conafe in Mexico that's trying to expand the tutorial networks, the learning community. What started as a learning community project to about thirty thousand communities all over the country is just mind blowing, very inspiring. They're not only now working with a pedagogical agenda, but also to try to redefine the nature of the community in school uh, connection and also changing the whole institution. So changing the entire system. Um, and uh, and that's something incredibly exciting. The second one would be uh, some work we're engaging with in California, in particular with San Diego County, uh, the San Diego County Office of Education. And this is through my work with Michael Fullen. They are a very ambitious and, uh, and audacious leadership team that as a goal, they plan to reduce ch- child poverty. that's part of the, as an office of education, and of course, creating incredibly engaging learning environments. But part of their calling and their goal is to reduce child poverty. So that will involve way more engagement with communities, with the outside environment, outside of school, uh, that we're incredibly excited about. There's going to be a lot of learning from that. And then the third one is Chile. There's, uh, I have had a lot of presence in Chile over the past few years. Chile is going through a phenomenal redefinition. As a society, and um, and I'm just very excited to be uh, involved in a series of, of projects, courses, seminars, uh, research and development projects as well uh, that can help support. I'm hoping the the transition that Chile is going through into a, a much better society, uh, and I, I'm hoping an example for the world as to what a what a just, democratic, equalitarian, egalitarian, and thriving society can be organized.
1: Wow. And you've talked, as we've talked today, quite a lot about those people who have influenced your work, supported you in your work, been part of your journey. Who is someone that inspires you in the work that you do?
0: There's a lot of people. Of course, I would mention Gabriel Cámara. He's my lifelong mentor and uh, and he has meant so, many, so much to me. I have had the privilege of, of getting to know and developing very close relationships with some of the icons in the field of educational change. Michael Fullan, Andy Hargreaves, Richard Elmore. Again, my Marshall Gans as well is a big inspiration. And a few women that I have to, to highlight. One is Mary Jean Gallagher. She was the student achievement officer at the Ministry of Education. She's now part of our team. And through some of the work we're doing, I'm getting to learn more about the power of her leadership, uh, and I think she's one of the best uh, system leaders, leaders alive in day, these days in the world. Dalila Lopez, another phenomenal leader uh, in Mexico, one of the, my comrades in, um, in the Learning Community Project, has been doing phenomenal work. And uh, I will, I will name my wife as well. I'm realizing these these this, uh, two years have allowed me to see how important it is for me to have a good, solid, stri- uh, thriving love relationship with my wife. And I'm realizing that when we are okay, everything else is okay. So now I'm, 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 and, and the, the, the role she has played in helping me kind of navigate the craziness of, uh, of these times has been so foundational. So she's incredibly inspiring, and inspiring to me. And she's introducing me to these uh, fields of epigenetics and the, the role of consciousness in changing biology, which is, uh, which is uh, incredibly powerful.
1: It is really interesting when you realise that, you know, especially when you spend quite a lot of your life in your head and in intellectual pursuits and in other people's spaces and, and with other people that kind of give you energy, that, that actually all of that needs to be anchored in home relationship, something else that's a bit more constant.
0: And I think that's something that the pandemic has a potential to teach us. And I think it's a, it's a very important thing.
1: And so finally, if you were to distill your current thinking, and there's obviously loads and loads going on all over the world for you in terms of projects, thinking, research, education, um, if you were to distill that thinking into a thought, a resource that you would leave our listeners with, what would you leave
0: them with? If I may, I say, I'll say two. So the first one, and it's the one we started the conversation with, the core idea behind my work and that I'm hoping uh, many people will connect to is learning is a practice of freedom. That's, a, that's at the core of what I do, and I, I think it's, it's an important powerful idea to bring to the forefront of our, of our thinking and our action. The second one is, what do we educate for? And I think it's very important that we answer that question, that we are intentional about stating and responding to this question with as much clarity and precision as possible. What do we educate for? And my, my preferred four purposes for education are, we want an education. I want an education that will prepare our children and young people to know themselves to think and learn by themselves, to take care of themselves and others, and to better the, the world. I think that's, that's what we have to do. But even if you don't buy into these particular four, please ask yourself that question. Why are we educating? And use that as your compass, because there's a lot that we're doing that's getting in the way of what we really believe uh, education and schooling should be about.
1: What a great call to think about, like, really the purpose of schooling, uh, what it is that learning is, and how we can help our students to be uh, a a meaningful, perhaps, and, you know, contributing part of humanity. I think there's, um, there's so much that, you know, students that we're teaching now are the ones that are really going to change the world. So setting them up for being humans first and compliant learners second, perhaps. That's right. Thank you so much, Santiago, for joining me today on the Edu Salon.
0: Thank you so much, Deb. I love the work you're doing. I admire your work tremendously and I'm feeling very honored to be able to share this space with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Salon podcast. You can join the conversation by subscribing to this podcast and sharing it with your network by giving this podcast a rating or review and by connecting with Deb and her guests on social media.